Hello there. Just a heads up before things get started, this episode contains some strong language. Hello, everyone, and happy 2021. The Review is back for its first show of the new season and the new year. Um, it has already been a year, and it's only been a week into 2021. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my opinion right now. But I'm John Brown. I'm getting a karaoke. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Kirsten Dorman. And we do have a special guest panelist on our show this week. Austin, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi there. My name is Austin Davis, and I am a third-year student at ASU. Uh, I'm a poet and an unsheltered outreach organizer. Thank you so much for having me today. Of course. Thank you for coming on. I was reading some of your work before we went on air, and I think it's just absolutely so incredible and interesting, especially during the time we're going through now. I think your work is more important than ever. So thank you for coming on our podcast to discuss today. Um, so I'd like to start off with um, one of your books that you have published, The World Isn't the Size of our neighborhood anymore. And you, the book um, is discussing um, toxic masculinity, school shootings, drugs, and love. And um, it's so interesting that school shootings um, and also mass shootings as well comes to play as the anniversary um, of former Arizona representative Gabby Giffords was today. Um, just talk to me about what you went going into your book. Just talk to me how it played out and what really inspired you to write it. Yeah, for sure. Well, so the world isn't the size of our neighborhood anymore. Is It's really just an ode to growing up in a time of great turbulence. And, you know, it's about all the good times and all the bad times and all the times you had to grow up too fast. And for this collection, it's, it's not super long. It's, I think it's about 35 pages, 36 but I really wanted each poem in this book to lead into the next so that it feels coherent and full. So I wanted it to, to form kind of a narrative through poems, um, you know, and tell the story of someone growing up and witnessing these tragedies happening daily, you know, almost daily, these gun violence tragedies, you know, and also, you know, I, as I think a lot of men and boys experience growing up, you know, experienced a lot of toxic masculinity in school and through peers, you know, and just teachers and role models and older men, you know, who just kind of said that it's not okay to share your emotions and you have to be strong and it's not okay to be vulnerable. And I've, I've been writing poetry pretty much my whole life, you know, since I could write. And I was always by someone, there's always supporters as well, but I'd been ridiculed as well for being vulnerable and sensitive. And, you know, it's been kind of a journey for me to realize that I, th I think, in my opinion, one of the greatest strengths a person can have is being completely open and honest and vulnerable and truthful with the world, you know? 
yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, especially going back to toxic masculinity, it's still something we need to improve on as a society because um, just simply we shame on men for crying. And as a society, we put crying that like, if you cry, it's a sign of weakness and um, it's a sign of, oh, you you scream like a girl or yeah. you play like a girl. And it goes into all these stereotypes that society has put into us and that is in our nation's schools. And I think teachers and teachers just pointing out that men should not cry. And I just, that's the most disappointing thing because teachers are our educators, they're our leaders, they're teaching us for our industry. And if they are putting down someone, that is 10 times worse than your parents because obviously not everyone has good parents. But in my personal opinion, going to teachers is sometimes as a resource because I know everyone in their life has that one good teacher that everyone can connect with. Yeah. And I just think when you put down someone like that, it is absolutely awful and there's just no feeling like it. And I really like the point you made about toxic masculinity because we're definitely not there as a society to accepting everyone. And this is can be the same thing said with men painting their nails. And that society is putting nail polish, simply nail polish, just labeling it for women only. And I just think you're seen as someone different if you're if a guy paints their nails and it's sure. nail polish. Yeah. Literally no gender to it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I it took me a while to kind of realize, you know, how I personally like to exist in this world and how I personally like to express myself, you know, and I, I like to wear makeup sometimes and I paint my nails and, you know, I, I like to wear colorful clothing. Sometimes I wear uh, women's clothing, you know, and I often get looks from people in the streets or at stores or something or, you know, people, little tiny things where like, I'll be walking by and someone will be like, oh, that's, that's pretty or something, or, but they're saying it in a very sarcastic way, you know, and these things don't really bother me anymore, but I can totally see how these little tiny things could totally affect a kid growing up, you know, or someone who's, who's very impressionable and just trying to express themselves. I can definitely see how having someone put you down for trying to express yourself could be very detrimental. So I empathize with, you know, kids who feel, feel this way or have been bullied or have, have felt similarly, you know? Right. Kirsten, go ahead. Thank you, John. So a lot of what the conversation is right now is also bringing to mind a lot of discourse about the role that feminism has or that a lot of people say that <laughs> that feminism has in encouraging and giving young men and boys and even older men the tools to overcome this. What do you think about that? And what do you think those tools might be? Yeah, I mean, I think that having these conversations is just super valuable. You know, um, I, I have uh, a little brother and a little sister, and I, I try to have these conversations with my brother and my sister, you know, and I hope that as they get older, I'll still continue to have these conversations with them. And, you know, something that's been was super valuable for me as a child was my dad, because my dad has always shown me that it's okay to express your emotions and it's okay to feel sad. 
and you know it's okay to not be okay sometimes and he's always um really celebrated uh art you know and expression and vulnerability so that's been super valuable for me so i just think that you know pushing adults to have these conversations with kids teachers to have these conversations with kids and you know just just try to educate and teach and uplift you know um i I personally struggle with OCD and anxiety and depression. And I know that, you know, for a lot of people, like a lot of guys, if, if they're struggling with a mental illness or mental health concern, you know, they don't feel like they have anyone to talk to, or they don't feel like they, they don't feel like it's manly, you know, to, to have these emotions or to, to feel sad, you know? So I, I feel lucky that I've had a good support system as well in, in my family to help me get better you know and so yeah I think it's just it's important to note because obviously in some like major cities such as like New York Chicago LA um just in fashion in general as personally I really got into fashion and I think dressing up like in the way you dress up in different cities like compared to like Alabama, for example, is so much different. You would get so many different looks in New York than, or I'm sorry, in Alabama than you would get in New York. And I'm just taking that as an example. And I think um, taking like the fashion like back to um, toxic masculinity. And I also think it has to deal with a good part of where you grow up because, mm. and also with your family as well. Um, it's just, obviously it'll be different in a city like New York than a city per se in Alabama. That's probably not true in all instances, but I definitely think like where you grow up is definitely plays an influence as well. Cause you could either grow up in a small town or grow up in a really huge city. I definitely, yeah, yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. Like the ways in which environment in fact affect the way that we grow up and stuff. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Yeah, so just um, tell me more about um, when it talks about school shootings, just tell me, just go into depth about that and tell me more about um, your influence and what made you write about school shootings. Yeah, for sure. So I think the, the first poem that I ever wrote about gun violence was called Trading Flesh for Metal. And I wrote it as a senior in high school after uh, the Parkland shooting. And I wrote it after, you know, seeing all this on the news, thinking about, you know, what if, what if this had happened to our school? What if this had happened to my brother, my little brother, my little sister? And just, that was just a very frightening, scary thought to me. So I wrote a poem about it. And uh, I read that poem at a uh, March for Lives event. Um, when they came to Arizona, um, they were touring some of the Parkland survivors were touring and going to different, uh, having events and talking, having these conversations about gun violence in America. And I read a few poems at it and listened and I just learned a lot from that. So from there, you know, I just tried to educate myself a little more. And I wrote one poem that's in The World Isn't the Size of Our Neighborhood called uh, Words from a Student. And it was along a similar path. It was mostly that poem was about me um, just thinking about what if this had happened to my little brother or little sister or, and just that fear, you know, 
how scary that thought is. Right. And that's just such a reality. Everyone going to school fears. Like, I know it's, I know for me, I was constantly thinking of if this ever happened at my high school uh, or even college, for instance, I would just have a second, like a game plan essentially to get the hell out of there. Because if we're being real, um, the drills that they do in school relating to school shootings, I, I just don't think those are good enough at times instead of like just immediately getting out and finding a way. Um, and obviously we, we have seen before, um, it's just, it is a really bad reality that people going to school are traumatized of this. They're scared to go to school because the US has such a bad problem with school shootings. And every single time after every single school shooting, we always say, we're going to do something about it. And then we don't. Yeah. This has happened with Columbine, um, Parkland, Newtown. Um, it's just so infuriating. So I, I totally get where you're coming from. And I really loved you express this in a poem because I'm sure you are echoing um, the statements of every single high schooler that's out there, every single student that's out there. Right. Yeah. I just remember, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I, I would have these, like, we'd be talking in class. Like, I, I remember having a conversation. It was like an hour long conversation in one of my English classes where it, like, we just went off topic and everyone started talking about how afraid they were of this, you know? And I have like just a very vivid memory of that because like that, that was just so. Yeah, it's, it's just absolutely awful that, and Kirsten brought up a good point in her Zoom chat about the shooting in Santa Clarita, that it barely got any coverage because it had just become so common for a school shooting. And it's just, I, I have no words at time at times, like when talking about this, it's just absolutely awful. And I don't know if any of our panel or our panelists have anything to say about this. I want to open up the conversation to you guys. Yeah, you know, um, not really on the gun. Actually, I, I want to try to change the trajectory of this interview. Uh, well, I think, yeah, and ask Austin, like, so what got you into poetry in the first place? Like, what just called you to it? In a way? For sure, yeah. Well, I, uh, I started out writing short stories when I was really young. So probably like nine or 10, I'd be writing these short stories. And I used to um, fold them up, staple them together, draw my own covers, and then like pass them out for free to like my family, friends, people in the neighborhood, um, just because I, I thought it was fun. And that was like my first introduction to writing. But I've been reading all my life, you know, like I've always been just such an avid reader. So I think it was just natural that I started to write. And for some reason, I just felt super drawn to poetry. I can't really explain why, but writing a poem is the most natural form of expression for me personally. And I don't know why that is, but in my poetry, I like to tell stories. So I think that having read a lot of fiction growing up, that's really informed and helped, you know, this narrative, narrative style poetry that I write now. And I, I'm not really sure why I, I write short stories too, but I'm not really sure why 
I feel most comfortable in a poem. Like when I write a poem, it's like, it's therapeutic. You know, I feel warm if I write a love poem or if I write a poem about what I'm afraid of, I feel like I'm giving myself a hug, you know, and I'm like, it's going to be okay. You know, I know you're scared, but here's a poem you just wrote. And it it's very comforting for me, very therapeutic. And I, I just, I've always felt like I, I need to get all this crap out of my head. You know, there, there are some times where I just feel having from what I've experienced, what I've seen that like, I need to wring out my brain like a sponge, you know, like my brain has all these toxins in it. I just need to wring it out. And for me, writing poetry is, is how I can wring out my brain. So Austin, you just talked about, you started with short stories and then eventually you moved into poetry. Where does the line kind of blur between fiction and reality for you when it comes to poetry from drawing from your own experiences to things that actually happen to kind of writing a little bit more fiction-like for the emphasis of storytelling? Yeah, for sure. For a while, when I was younger, I was like, this is a poem. This has to be completely honest and true, and I can't change any of the details. For some reason, that's just what I thought a poem was. Like, this is someone who saw a thing, experienced a thing, felt a thing, and they put that exact thing onto the page. But as I've grown up, I've realized that it's more, it's stronger to use your, your real experiences, your real emotions as a place to bounce off of to create this story. So sometimes I'll write a poem and it's, it's factual to what I've experienced. It's like journalistic poetry. But oftentimes um, I use it as a place to jump off of and I create this little story. And I think that's super valuable as well. I, I find that, that that's really natural to me too, blending the two between fiction and reality. And, you know, just trying to create this space where hopefully, honestly, you know, my, my biggest goal with poetry is to connect with people and show people who are feeling the same things, who are having these same fears that I've, I, I feel that way as well. You know, you're not alone. Um, we'll get through this together, you know? So uh, Austin, so I was, I was sort of was thinking, so you mentioned, so, you know, you sort of talked about how for poetry, poetry for you is, is is a sort of uh, form of, of self therapy for yourself. Yeah, it helps you get through tough times or through the different expressing and and um, sort of reflecting on emotions. And so you and then you talked about how you have written poems um, about school shootings. Have and that was sort of making me think of I like for a lot of us um, for kids people our age we have a lot of things that we're like really either interested in or concerned about at the state of the world. Would you say that sort of similarly with, um, with poetry and your own emotions, how is like, what kind of like feelings or effects does it have on you when you write about like problems outside of yourself or big, in a sense, like the big questions that face, I guess, us? Yeah, for sure. I can only, like, I, I, I always want to write about, you know, my perspective on things, you know? So, you know, if I, I felt very afraid of of gun violence in that moment and it, it was actually a very difficult poem to write like the sometimes the words come very easy and there's like this initial burst of creativity and then I edit for a long time but with that poem it was just something that I knew I wanted to write a poem about but I, I couldn't force it so I kind of just thought about it for a very long time and eventually something it just came out but um yeah I I definitely like to write you know political poetry and I've really gotten into recently thinking about uh, poetry in regards to homelessness, because I've been doing a lot of work with the unsheltered community. And 
uh, for the last year, it's, it's been, I think we, we started the program in like uh, end of March in response to COVID. And I've only written one poem about my experiences with the Unsheltered, but I have, I've had daily experiences that I, I feel I could write poems about. So th that's, that's been something I've thought about recently. That's interesting. Like I've experienced these things, thought these things, seen these things, but I haven't had time to process it maybe, you know? So uh, I recently just finished one poem about that. Um, but I'm hoping to write more about uh, the unsheltered. And I think it would be, yeah, re really cool to, to continue writing about that. Yeah, I would love if you could actually tell us a little bit more about what your program is like, how you guys formed, what do you do? Because yeah. that just, sounds like just awesome in, in any regard, you know, reaching out to people that a lot of people kind of pass by on the street and either look down at or don't look at at all. It's really great that your group of people is just is reaching out to them. So commending you for that, first of all, and also I'd love to hear more about that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I've really just fallen in love with the humanity of it, having conversations with the unsheltered, listening to them. Um, have, have any of you been to the zone? The zone is um, a, the biggest tent city in Phoenix, and it surrounds the human services campus, which is a big shelter. Uh, they provide a lot of really amazing resources for the unsheltered. Um, but all the uh, shelters are at capacity right now in Phoenix and Arizona. So as a result, there's this big tent city that surrounds the shelter. And it's uh, usually, it's, it starts, it's around 12th Avenue and Jefferson Street. And I'd say there's a couple hundred people out in that area. And that's for sure not the only area where there are the unsheltered in Phoenix. There are lots of other groups. There are other little families you know there's a community in tempe but this is the area I, I go to this area we call it the zone every week i go to other areas as well but for example uh yesterday i was there in the zone tomorrow tomorrow morning uh, i'll be going back to the zone and we started this project um after visiting the zone uh for the first time i'd never been there but um my friend eddie and i eddie is the um uh the our organizer for Arizona Jews for Justice. And he, he and I went out there and we just noticed, like it, it was just very striking to me, the need, you know, um, not, not many people had masks. And, you know, this was, this was when it was starting to get a little warm again, this was March. And so we just thought, hey, you know, why don't we try to organize our community to get donations? So it, it, it originally started because we wanted to provide face masks and sanitary items, hand sanitizer, to help keep them safe from the virus. But it's, it's really grown from there. So right now we collaborate with Project Humanities at ASU and um, Let's Be Better Humans. I don't know if you've, you've ever seen the Let's Be Better Humans bus, but John Linton, he, he and I actually just went to Mexico um, for, to aid some ref, refugees at a migrant center. And he has this big bus that's been painted and it's the Let's Be Better Humans bus. That's another conversation. He's one of my, he's a super close friend, really amazing person. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, our, our project is completely led by the community and it's really just grown organically. So people join me to deliver sometimes or I do it alone. Uh, and every week I go to the zone and I go tent to tent and I hand out these care packs. And you know, these care packs have hand sanitizer, razors, 
um, tissues, feminine hygiene products, um, non-perishable food, a cold water, whatever we think people might need in their day-to-day lives to sustain them for the next couple of days until I go back out there. Um, and lots of other groups do amazing stuff like this as well. So we're just doing, doing what we can, you know, but the biggest part of, of what we do, I think is have conversations with people, you know? So when I go out there, some of my closest friends in the world right now are actually unsheltered and I'll go out there and just talk to people, listen to them, see how they're doing. And, um, one thing that I have started doing is taking requests. So if someone says they need a specific thing, then I'll write it down on my phone and then ask the community. I'll be like, Hey, my friend, John needs this. He needs a tent. He's sleeping out on, um, the sidewalk. Like yesterday, for example, um, my friend, Henry, he's a unsheltered man living in Phoenix and he is, he sleeps on the sidewalk every night, even though it's cold and it's dangerous. He sleeps on the sidewalk with a few blankets and a pillow. And he tries to, every, every morning he has to try to get his name into the drawing to get a space in this big cafeteria hall. And if he gets his name in, he'll get to go in and have a little space and just sleep in a shelter um, because all the shelters are at capacity. So that's his only option. So he asked me and he was like, hey, could, could you get me a tent? So I put out the call on social media and I just asked and I got a donation of some money. So I went and bought him a tent and I just gave him the tent yesterday. And so now from there tonight, Henry has been able to put his tent up in a lot and he has a space. So, you know, hopefully it's not the best option. It's not like he is completely safe, but hopefully he's a little better off than he was the night before. And I I guess that's kind of the goal to help people be a little better off than they were the night before, you know, but um, yeah, we, we take requests. So like tomorrow I'm bringing one of my friends, a green suitcase, her favorite color is green. And she needs a suitcase. So I went to Goodwill and got her a suitcase. And I'm bringing some specific jean sizes because some people surprisingly don't have jeans. A lot of people just have shorts because it was so fucking hot over the summer, you know? So people don't have pants and it gets cold as hell out there at night, you know? Not Flagstaff snowy, which is another dangerous, dangerous conversation. Um, People are dying in the snow up there. but But here in Phoenix, you know, it still gets to like 30 degrees at night. And if you don't have a tent or a blanket or pants, you know, it, it can be very dangerous. So uh, yeah, we're, we're just doing what we can, you know? Yeah. I um, just, oh, sorry. Um, no, 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 you go. Yeah, Austin, I, I mean, yeah, that, that's really great work that you and the uh, Arizona Jews for Justice group are doing. Um, yeah, I have, I actually do live relatively close to the zone. Oh wow! And, um, yeah, that's 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 right. That's pretty. That's uh, within a walking distance of my apartment. So, do you live close to the Capitol? Because one thing that I, I found striking, and it's an image that I put in a a poem that I wrote about, yeah, the unsheltered is is the fact that literally across this street, there's the Capitol, the Phoenix Capitol, all this wealth, and on the other side is the exact opposite. There are hundreds oh, yeah. of people, yeah, living just on the street. And I just find that so striking because yeah. you, you can literally drive down that street, look to your left, and then a few seconds later, look to your right and see the direct contrast. Oh, yeah. Um, yes, I, yeah, I live somewhere in the downtown area that's not far away from the state capital. And yeah, and yeah, no, you're, 
um, for those of you who don't know downtown Phoenix very well, like exactly where the zones located, it's like right in between the skyscrapers and the state government complex. So, 12th Street in Jefferson is where I park. Yeah. And it's yeah. right in the middle. It's right between, right in that space, in that neighborhood, right between the sky, the big skyscrapers and all the new flashy, the arenas and all the new flashy things. Yeah, it's right by, right by the Diamondback Stadium, too. It's like, yeah, it's a, a couple, couple blocks, blocks from Diamondback. Yeah. And, and then you have the state government right there, the, the state capital and all the government agencies right there. And, yeah, it's a study in contrast. And the housing, I know there's a lot of talk of like the housing crisis in the Phoenix area is absolutely insane. Like people just in, in quote unquote affordable Phoenix, people just can't afford yeah, to have right. housing anymore. The issue is the price of living is high, wages people are paid are low. So this cycle of poverty is just perpetuated. Yeah. and. And by the way, I should know, as somebody who is a Valley native, I'm not from the downtown area. I'm from way far out this place called Surprise I've mentioned on the show thousands of times before. <laughs> um, and even in Surprise, there is there are unsheltered people. Like, um, I remember in high school, I didn't realize this until I was told, um, a mentor of mine was talking about the uh, the the crisis, the housing crisis, and he brought up that there was a, a camp of uh, unsheltered folk right underneath a bridge, a bridge I would just, and, I, and by this point I was driving, and it was a bridge I would drive on every, once every other week, you know, I, when I needed to just go down that way, and and then I, one, one time I was driving afterward, like one of the first times I was driving afterward, I looked, I looked, because I was told exactly where it was, and you could see it. It was right there in plain right. sight. Hi, and this, it was in a river, a dry riverbed. Yeah, the canals. It, was it a canal yeah. or? Uh, no, no, it's an actual river, the Agua Fria. Wow. It's an actual, it was because, you know, they're dry most of the year. Yeah. So, because it's dammed up. Yeah, that, that's common in, in dry riverbeds or canals down by lakes, you know, that's very common to find little little encampments of five to 10 people or even more, you know? Yeah, and this is kind of, it's hard for me to put that to, like, I remember learning, it kind of like, it kind of shattered a little thing, like, cause like I had seen unsheltered people and surprises, not many, but I've seen a couple by that point. But when I was a little kid, that was not a problem surprise. That's not a problem. like. Once again, I'm in a really far out suburb. Like this was the fact that it's reaching even as far out as like about 35 miles from uh, from Phoenix is like it's no, it's, it's, a, it's yeah, it's everywhere now. And that's, so this that's is what I this is what I do usually on my way home from Phoenix. So I live in Mesa. I live about 40 minutes away, maybe 35 something like that from the zone. Usually, what I do coming home from the zone is I take surface streets. So I go through Tempe. And I go to Tempe Town Lake and talk to people, give stuff out, or I'll just drive around. And if I see, see, you'll always see people on street corners or just in parks. And then from there, I'll go through Mesa and I'll find people at Circle K's, at gas stations, at parks. You know, you, you can go to any city in Arizona and find unsheltered people. And honestly, before doing this work, I, I didn't really think about that as much. You know, I, I knew that 
homelessness was a really big issue. And I knew that it was everywhere, but I'd never really seen that. You no, know, you could pick any city in America probably, and there would be a houseless person, you know? I think, yeah, I just hearing your story, um, it's just, it's, I don't, I, again, I don't have words. It's so, uh, it's so shocking. And I just, it uh, poses the question that our city government and the police, um, that they obviously need to do better. Um, but when you were talking about um, Henry, um, Civic Space Park came to my mind when um, before the pandemic happened. And the amount of times Phoenix PD would just simply kick the homeless out of the park. Yep. Because, and they were just sitting there. Yeah. Um, there's, um, it's, it, I always, like on my way to work, um, unfortunately there was a lot of homeless people and I just, and there's always a Phoenix police squad car that's um, there on site. And I just think it's, they're literally just sitting there and Phoenix police would kick them out. And it, it just makes me mad because the city of Phoenix and our police need to do better. Um, this is such a crisis. And um, I just wanna get your take um, especially with COVID, because I'm sure that makes everything 10 times worse. Um, I just want to get your perspective on our city, state, and national leaders and the police with dealing with um, this crisis. Right. I mean, it, it's crazy. There are, there's nowhere for people to go right now because all the shelters are um, full. So it's unconstitutional to tell people that you have to move. It's just it's as simple as that, you know, it's, it's morally wrong to tell someone you have to leave, you got to go find somewhere else, because there is nowhere else to go, you know, so I, I don't know, it, sometimes I don't have words for it, I just know that at the end of the day, when it's getting dark, and the sun's setting, people are afraid, because they don't know where they're going to sleep at night, you know, and that's why a lot of people are in the zone, because it's a community, and people have tents, and you can, you can put your tent there, but in, in a lot of other places in Arizona, um, you can't put your tent at like a park, you know, or you can't put your tent up on a lot of sidewalks or streets, you'll get kicked out by the police. So a lot of people I've just seen have this fear, where am I going to sleep tonight? You know, what am I going to do to stay safe? Like when it rained, there's, there's one time, there are like two, two times in the last like year that I remember it raining. But um, it was like a few months ago. I, I, I remember it vividly because I love the rain. Um, but I realized how scary the rain can be for an unsheltered person. You know, I, I remember driving to go um, pick up lunch. I was going to get lunch and then I was going to go to the zone. And I saw this guy sitting on a street corner in the rain and he was completely soaked and he kind of had his, his head in his hand. So I pulled over and went over to talk to him and he was crying. He was just bawling. He was like, I, I had a tent that, or not a tent. I had a sleeping bag and blankets and pillows. And I, I usually sleep in this lot. And I'm pretty warm, but all of that got soaked. And he was like, I'm freezing. I, I don't know what I'm going to do tonight. I don't have anything to protect me from the rain. And he, he could see that there were big storm clouds above him. And he was like, what if it rains again? What if I get hypothermia? What if I freeze tonight? And he was just crying. And we were able to get him like a, a tarp that he could like duct tape up to create a little roof and some blankets and stuff like that. And 
that's just a way to sustain someone through that night. But just having that conversation where I saw him crying, you know, that deeply affected me. I went back to my car and just started weeping, you know? Yeah, it's, it definitely, that situation is just absolutely awful. And I think it needs to be addressed to our state leaders. And especially since the state capitol is right there. And again, like they won't know about this until they actually have to encounter it. Right. It's so frustrating. And I commend you in every single way because if that was me, I would just lose it. And I, I think I, about every day, you know, when I see this and I get to leave, there's not like I spent a couple hours out there just saying, and then I get to go home. You know what I mean? And that's that's the hardest thing in the world for me because they, so hundreds, thousands of people don't have that option, you know, and I, I just wish I could do more, you know, because really what we're doing, we're sustaining people. And, you know, I, I think that this is something that John, um, my friend from Let's Be a Better Humans, he says this all the time. He says that if we went out there and we didn't hand a single thing out, if we just talked to people, listened, and if we were the, their friends, you know, that, that's just as valuable as handing things out or providing a blanket just in a different way, in an emotional way, you know? So I hold those two at, at the same level, you know, the emotional aspect and the, the physical, like, you're cold tonight, here's, here's something to help keep you warm, you know? But it's definitely um, hard sometimes when, when you see stuff like that. It's hard to process, but I, I think I've, I've learned more and more how to deal with it, you know, and keep going, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, I just wanna ask you, um, as somebody who once again, lives in close proximity to the zone and also reads a lot of uh, local papers and all, and I know that there is a lot of tension. Well, I don't live in that specific neighborhood that the zone is in. I live in an adjacent one, but that specific neighborhood has had a lot of tensions with the city and the zone and and do you want to elaborate on that for the listeners? Um, something that I mean, I've heard a little bit about that, like the idea that um, people in surrounding neighborhoods feel less safe or something. Is that what you're? Yeah, I, I've heard that as well as like local businesses. I've heard some local businesses say that, but like, I don't know. The, the thing is, like, you're talking about business against human rights. You know, I'm always going to side with human rights, um, and in regards to the safeness of living around there or living around unsheltered people in any capacity, I, from, from what I've, I, I've seen unsheltered people every day and I've, I've never really had any, any violent situations. You know, those are very scarce. Those are very uncommon. It, 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 just in my, in my opinion, in my perspective, from what I've seen, I can't speak for everyone and I can't, I can only speak on what I've experienced, you know, but most people are just trying to survive, you know, and they're just trying to get through the day, get through the night, you know, so it, that's my take on it, but. Yeah, and also um, I've been reading uh, in the Phoenix New Times and the Arizona Republic that there have been plans to expand the shelters in that area and that there's been issues with, that it's continually gone through review like a couple times yeah. because of, objections from outgo now outgoing council uh, city councilman Michael Nowakowski who represents that part of Phoenix 
and other tech. There's just a lot of really messy um, relations and politics concerning right. the zone. Yeah, so the, the Human Services Campus put forth um, this request uh, in front of City Council, Phoenix City Council, and they were asking to increase the number of shelter beds on the campus because CAS, which is Central Arizona Shelter Services, is at capacity every night. So I think CAS's capacity is like 400, something like that, and they were asking to raise it to like 700, something like that. Um, and I, I believe the hearing was was last night, and I, I don't have all the information about what happened, what went down. I wasn't able. I was in the zone. Uh, I wasn't able to uh, like call in and hear, but. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll talk to people tomorrow about it and see what what happened. You know, I, I'm really hoping that um, the request passed. I'm hoping that we can add more beds. Um, I personally think that it's urgent that we do this because there are every day there are more people who are experiencing houselessness. You know, and with that, more and more people are dying. And um, this is something that I've said before, and I've I've heard this before, but like with this, along with the work that I do, it's, it's not a long-term solution, you know, but putting a Band-Aid on the wound will hopefully help it become, not become infected, you know. But especially with the pandemic, I know you mentioned earlier, you were talking about COVID in relation to this. Um, I'm, I'm terrified about what's going to happen this year. I'm scared that more and more people are going to lose their jobs and get sick, you know, and like the issue with houselessness is there's a lot of unforeseen circumstances in life, you know, like a medical bill or being evicted um, that can send someone to the streets, you know, and I've met people who have been houseless uh, for a very long time, but I've also met, I, I met a couple, this was over the summer. I was just at a park in downtown Mesa and I met this couple and they were just, um, they were like lounging on a, like a grassy incline you know, and I went over and started talking to them and uh, they were just having a snack and washing their feet and their hands. And we were talking and they were like, yeah, we've, we've never been homeless. This is the first time we just got evicted. We're, and their exact quote, this quote is stuck to me. They said, uh, we're new to this. And that just, that, that affected me when I heard that. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's daunting and scary and yeah. My gosh. And shifting gears a little bit here, still talking about your activism, though, I noticed that Celestial Nightlight on your website, there's a note here saying that all donations made for this title will go directly to Black Lives Matter. There's a donate to Black Lives Matter button. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what is behind that? And just in general, why, what kind of brought you to apply your poetry to your activism in this way for sure so just a little background info on that little collection so it was published by ghost city press um over the summer and ghost city press is they're, they're really cool they do this thing every summer it's called the summer series and they publish one little free um online chat book by a different poet every weekday of the summer so it's like hundreds of these little collections yeah and it, I started out reading them. It was like the, the previous summer, a year ago, I heard about them and I just get their chat books in the email, like you can subscribe, you know, and get their, um, their like a new chat book every morning. And it was just like a really wonderful way to start my day was like reading 15 pages of poetry and then going about my day, you know, 
And I, I did that this summer as well. I tried to like read every collection that was published. And I, I, I just thought that was such a cool idea. So I, I wrote this little collection, mostly during quarantine, actually, uh, during the beginning of COVID. And it's this, this little book about love and loss and mental health, you know, in quarantine and how, again, afraid, you know, I was feeling. Um, so it's free to download, all these chapbooks are, but uh, you have the option to, like people can donate to you, like the author, or they can donate to a nonprofit or whatever. And I, I chose for this summer, for my little book, um, all proceeds or all donations, whatever you want to call it, to go to Black Lives Matter. And, you know, ever since I started trying to publish and I was like, this is, this is what I want to do with my life, along with homeless outreach, you know, this is how I, I want to, I've always wanted to bridge art and activism because I think that art is such a valuable tool in, in acting activism. It's a really great way to mobilize change, I think. So, you know, that's always been one of my big goals with my poetry. Um, and whether that's through the content of the writing, you know, when I'm talking about masculinity or gun violence or houselessness or through fundraising, you know, or f whatever I can do personally in some little way. So, you know, while the poems in Celestial Nightlight um, don't have to do, like the content isn't around racism um, or white privilege. I wanted their existence in the world to help in even just a small, very tiny way, you know, to working, to tearing down this system of inequality. So it's always been my, my goal with my poetry and I hope to, um, to get better at that, you know, to learn more about how to do this um, in more successful ways and to just keep growing and learning and keep, keep creating, you know? people want to like get involved in activism or even help you with your outreach what would your advice to them be how can people help you how can they reach out to you oh for sure yeah everyone this is it's a community project you know everyone is welcome to to join our project so um people can come with me out into the streets and and do the deliveries um but if you don't feel comfortable doing that which it's totally understandable we're in the middle of a pandemic you know um you can help from home, you know, people all the time. A lot of what I do is I, I drive around Phoenix and Mesa and Chandler, Gilbert, whatever, Tempe, and I pick up donations. People just message me on social media or send me an email or send our organization. And they're like, hey, I have five blankets. I have, I'm, I'm going to go to the store right now to get groceries and I'm going to buy you some hand sanitizer and toothbrushes and stuff. Can you pick them up? And I'll be like, yeah. And so it's just everyone really chipping in in whatever way they can. We also have um, groups and families and um, just people who make these care packs sometimes at home. So like I know some Project Humanities um, volunteers have made care packs. I just passed those out yesterday actually. And that's been super valuable because for a while, um, most, most of the time I would make the care packs myself. And it's, it's kind of time consuming when you're doing all that, like putting all the care packs together. It kind of takes a while if you only have one person. So Sometimes people would come to our office, have a safe social distance care pack thing, um, you know, or they'll make them from home and I'll pick them up. We actually have a donation drive uh, happening on the, on the 17th, I believe. I, I'm not sure if it's finalized yet, but we're trying to have another donation drive because we did one on, over the summer and we were like, hey, you just come uh, have a drive through donation drive, come and drop off whatever you can outside of our office. And it, it worked out really great. We got so much stuff. 
And I want to make a trip to Flagstaff pretty soon here <clears throat> because I, I've heard and read in like local news articles and stuff that um, there are people in Flagstaff who uh, don't have tents at night or who don't have enough blankets or who are really cold and it's snowed there, you know? And even if it doesn't snow, it's really damn cold, you know? And one, one thing that I, I didn't know this, but I just found this out a couple of days ago. I went to a Walmart and I found these little, like they're like this big and they're, they're tents. They're $4. They're called like, like emergency tent or something like that. Um, I, they're like Ozark trail something. And what you do, instead of having poles, you can like, you unravel it and you tie the string to two trees. So I was like, this will be great. I can bring these to Phoenix. And then it dawned on me, oh, in the middle of the city, there's not trees. You know, people can't do this. This isn't going to work. But it might work for Flagstaff, you know, where I, I've, I've, I know that there are some people sleeping in the woods. Um, so that's something I'd like to try to mobilize and work on. I'm not sure yet. I have to do more research and see if that's actually a way, something that could help people. I don't know how many people are sleeping in the woods, if that's a big issue, but I'll have to learn some more, do research, but we'll see, you know. But yeah, everyone's welcome in whatever way you want to help out, you know. Just message me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or uh, I could say my email. My email is awdavis0214 at gmail.com. And like, if you have any ideas, collaborate. Like, we're, we just, I think that collaboration and working with people is the key to progression in every sense. So, and we'll drop the uh, in, uh, Austin's contact information in the show notes. So, uh, Check the show notes on the episode you're listening to now for that. That's so sweet of you. Yeah, that that's amazing. That would be awesome. Yeah, uh, when reading your poetry, yeah, uh, again, I can't say this enough. Your poetry is absolutely great. And I was wondering if you want, actually want to read some of it. I, I know we mentioned before the show that if you wanted to, I think some of it, I think our viewers would love to hear it. Of course, yeah. How many poems would you like me to read? How much time do you think we have? You know, I think we got time for one or two. <laughs> for sure. I will, I'll read one poem from Celestial Nightlight and then maybe one poem from this, this next book. I just finished writing a full-length book and I'm looking to get it published. So I'll read a poem from that. I think that those poems are, are my best work, really. So um, yeah, I'll read one from Celestial Nightlight and one from the new one. And yeah, um, let's see. So this poem uh, is the last poem in Celestial Nightlight, and it's a little happier. It's a love poem. Um, I, I like to read it because it's a little less sad than a lot of what I write. <laughs> Still a little sad, <laughs> but uh, it's called Tell Me About Your Day. We meet up in the library parking lot every night after you get off work at the drugstore. We lay on the roof of my van and stare up at the sky. You call the stars cosmic freckles and tell me that our biology teacher from high school buys extra small condoms and that the V on the middle of a Valium pill looks like a little heart that wants more than anything to become a circle. I nod and laugh and think about how we're both going to die some night in our sleep and we'll never see it coming. The leaves have no idea they're going to fall the fish have no idea they're going to be eaten by an unhappy family around a big oak table. And you have no idea that getting to hear about your day for 32 and a half minutes every night 
is what makes me okay with waking up in the morning. I suppose this is the way living has always been. You think you're happy, and so you meet that person who makes you notice every ache in your chest. Maybe we should drive my van into the book deposit bin and steal all the books our consciences can carry. Maybe we should make out or make love or make up some story about a little home in the mountains with art on the walls, a pineapple pizza cooking in the oven, and 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins playing on a ham radio in the kitchen. In my mind, you're pulling into the driveway in the same car you're driving tonight, about to lay with me by the fireplace on our rug of pink and yellow orchids. Tell me all about the last 10 hours of your existence and make me feel like the man who cried into the clouds during a solar eclipse and did not go blind. Thank you. <laughs> Imagine that we were snapping because like, we can't snap. <laughs> <that well. laughs> we, we are, we're all just muted on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, to, to everyone at home, we are snapping and this poem was awesome. <laughs> that was phenomenal. Thank you so much. Well, uh, yeah, I'd love to read um, another poem from uh, from the next book, and you just let me know what the what the time's looking like. But this poem is uh, called "Happy Birthday," and I think it's it's going to be the third poem in my next book. There's a yellow balloon, the color of autumn after snow, bouncing around my chest. I often mistake its rhythm for my heartbeat, so trust me. I know I can't be trusted. Let's play a party game where we have to take turns telling each other about all our fears and mistakes and take a shot each time we wish we had a time machine. We'll be blackout drunk before the guests start ringing our doorbell. Last night, I broke into my old elementary school and left a coffee mug full of wet dirt and seeds in the janitor's closet to see if it's possible for a flower to grow tall and bright under the glow of a light bulb on a string. I've always thought of happiness as being tangible, the most brilliant mango hanging from the highest branch. But if we can't even find the forest, how are we supposed to climb the tree? Each day numbs me into dismissiveness until my lips are purple from wine and I'm sitting on the patio watching the rain darken the red brick tiles around my feet. Fill my lungs with hot breath and we'll blow out the candles together sing that familiar tune, learn how to pop without a sound. Thank you. Again, to, <laughs> to people who are listening, we're all snapping. Those were great, Austin. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for listening. And with that, we're going to wrap up our special series with Austin Davis again, Today's conversation was very meaningful, as all of our conversations are, and I think it just teaches a lesson that we all need to be kind, and this is just, it was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Austin. Um, again, Austin's social medias will be um, in our um, podcast. Yeah, I sorry, I could not yeah we'll put them in the description uh that you click on and yes um and i and just want to say one last thing uh before we end this uh yeah like once again thank you austin and also 
if you're listening and you got like Austin is uh, somebody who stumbled into our show somehow and um, heard the offer to come talk to us that we made and we were dead serious about it. So if you are reluctant because you're like, um, if you're reluctant because you think we're bluffing, um, especially those of you who know me personally and think I'm doing another joke again, I'm, I'm, we're dead serious here. We will talk to you. And so yes, you can reach out to us. I guess I, I guess now I get to do the social media wrap up thing. Um, you can reach out to us on social media uh, at review underscore squared on Instagram and Twitter, mainly on Twitter. And also, if you do want to email us, that it you can also do that at thereviewsquared at gmail dot com. That is an email that is actually monitored. Fun fact. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I watch it and. Um... Yeah, and to add on on Gideon's point, Austin's book, Celestial Nightlight by Ghost City Press, and um, The World Isn't the Size of Our Neighborhood Anymore by uh, Weasel Press will also be in our show notes as well. And with that, and for everyone on the review, thank you for joining us tonight, and thank you, Austin, for joining us as well. And thank you so much we for having hope- me. It's a blessing to, to talk with you and have this conversation, so I... I- really means the world to me so thank you of course please come back anytime we loved having you and that does it for our show have a great night everyone the song at the start of the episode is dedicated to the press by betty davis and the music you hear is by springtide